been shot out in the front yard. You know, she got no pearls. Where was he shot at? I don't know. I was in bed. The kids came running in. He's laying out in the driveway. Okay, do you know who did it, sir? No, he just drove up with his kids and they shot him. Who did? The car. I don't know. Okay. Get an ambulance. Okay, I've already got help on the way, sir, okay? In 1999, in the Oklahoma suburb of Edmond, local businessman Paul Howe took his two daughters shopping for school supplies and then to the Brahms Dairy for ice cream. The family didn't realize it at the time, but as they left the Brahms parking lot, they were followed by two men in an Oldsmobile Cutlass. When Paul arrived at his parents' home, one of the men got out of the car walked to the driver's side of Paul's Suburban and shot him in the head, killing him instantly. Paul's sister, Megan Toby, quickly grabbed the children and rushed them into the house. As she did, she saw the man drive off in Paul's Suburban, running over her brother's body as he fled the scene. It didn't take long for investigators to single in on a local car thief named Julius Jones. Inside his home, Police found the murder weapon and clothing that matched the shooter's description. The evidence looked overwhelming, and the jury agreed. Jones was found guilty and sentenced to death for the murder of Paul Howell. Since then, however, many have come to question Jones' involvement. A movement has formed, led by lawyers, activists, and celebrities, to free Jones from prison. Tonight, we'll discuss the murder of Paul Howell and whether the right man is behind bars. Hello, and welcome to Fact and Suspicion. I'm your host, Ben, here with my co-host, Dan, and tonight we'll be discussing whether Julius Jones murdered Paul Howell. Now, Daniel, I am well aware that there are a lot of people who care very deeply about this case. And I'm equally aware that very few of them will like much of what I have to say. Of course, you know, this is the internet, so I'm confident that those who disagree with me will do so calmly and politely. I'm, I'm sure you'll enjoy dealing with those con, uh, those comments on, on YouTube. Yeah, this is, this is going to be a lot of fun, Dan. Okay. <laughs> so, all I ask is if you were among those who genuinely believe that Jones is innocent, that you hear me out. I promise I will fully explain how I arrived at my conclusions, and then you can judge for yourself what is and isn't true. Is there really enough evidence, do you think, to make a call one way or the other in this one? I think yes. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to attack or demean anyone. Like, I understand why so many people think Jones is innocent. I mean, like most people, I first learned about Julius Jones through Viola Davis's documentary, The Last Defense. And like most people, I walked away thinking there was a good chance Julius was innocent. It was a good documentary. It was engaging, entertaining, and had fantastic production value. Basically, everything you could want out of a documentary. The problem is... It's also full of half-truths and outright misinformation. Many of the claims in The Last Defense are just demonstrably untrue. When you actually read the available court filings, transcripts, and appellate decisions, you know, rather than getting your information from Twitter or Kim Kardashian, the story the documentary tells falls apart. Well, that's... I can't say that, that that's the case with every documentary, but that's not uncommon among documentaries. They, it's not. I mean, you have to be very careful where you get your information from. Documentaries, I mean, can be a great source of information, but you also have you also have to take into account that they usually are an expression of someone's uh, position or opinion, right? There's mm-hmm. always a bias with documentaries, right? Uh, like one, for instance, that that always bothered me was in in Paradise Lost. Now I'm not I'm not going to sit here and argue that they 
they misrepresented what happened as far as the 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 actual facts with that. I just didn't like the way I feel like they were portraying the parents as being sort of like rednecks and insane when these people just lost their children, you know? Yeah, I mean I think a lot of that was just for entertainment value. Well, I, I mean, agree which, but, you know, you can question the ethics of it, but right. they they were good documentaries. Can't can't deny that. No. But it's just it's one of those things about documentaries that I just I don't know. I I, I don't think that's factual even though I guess that's. I mean, there was a clear bias to uh, Paradise Lost, but you know, documentarians tend to view like their subjects as kind of like characters in a show, often rather than as people. No, that that does happen, and I think that kind of comes across in Paradise Lost. I don't think that comes across in anything as much as it did in the Tiger King, but yeah, I never saw it. You've got to get on. Still haven't seen it. Right. Anyway. Now, so I want to be absolutely fair. There are some legitimate procedural issues with Julius's conviction that I'm going to discuss a bit later. But the key word there is procedural. The basic facts of the case remain unchanged, and they strongly suggest that Jones is guilty. Now, I'm not downplaying the importance of procedural errors. I want to be clear about that. I mean, it's not merely important that we get the right person, but that we do it the right way. We can't have a system where the state is able to trample a defendant's rights, you know, provided they're really convinced he's guilty, right? I mean, that that can't be how it works. No, though, honestly, I, I think we do have that sort of system right now. I think defendants' rights are often trampled, though. Oh, that I, may I be agree. The case here, but I mean, I do think that there were some errors, which is why I can probably say I'm glad that Jones's sentence has been commuted to life, despite the sham hearing that led to it. And it's also why I think there's a decent argument that he deserves a new trial. Of course, I think he'd just be convicted again because the evidence is basically overwhelming but at least there wouldn't be a shadow hanging over the case anymore. Now, further complicating matters is that this case touches on the death penalty. Now, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you likely know that I'm no fan of the death penalty. And it's not that I don't think that there are crimes that justify death. I just doubt our justice system's ability, in most circumstances, to reach a degree of certainty sufficient to take someone's life no and i i agree with that actually though there are always cases when when you know i i think someone really should be put to death and there are times i say you know i wish that you know they would just skip the trial and go on about things but really we can't do that (laughs) right yeah of course not now with all of that out of the way Since 99% of the claims made about Jones' innocence come from the last defense, I figured I'd start by going over the general timeline of events from the prosecution's perspective and then explain how the last defense's theory uh, deviates from it. After that, I'll go into the specific claims the documentary gets wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I'm actually really interested to to hear some of the theories from uh, from the documentary, because while I am familiar with the case, I have never seen that documentary. Like I said, it's a good documentary. I mean, from a factual basis, you're not missing much, but I mean, it's worth a watch. Well, I just, I wanted to kind of avoid it because I knew we were doing this episode and I wanted to ask, you know, real questions. Yeah, fair enough. So, yeah. Okay, so let's pick up immediately after Paul's murder and the 911 call that we heard at the beginning of the episode. Okay, two days after the murder, investigators found the Suburban parked at the Central Grocery Store on the south side of Oklahoma City. Since they knew that a stolen vehicle was involved, they began by looking into known car thieves. Makes sense. Now, one of their CIs was a man named Kermit Lottie who owned a local chop shop. So they went to speak with Lottie, and he told them that a man named Day-Day, who police recognized as Liddell King, had come by trying to sell a Suburban. 
Not long after, police had Liddell King in custody. Now, during questioning, Liddell told investigators that he was at his apartment watching TV sometime between 9.45 and 10 on the night of the murder. When Chris Westside Jordan pulled up blaring loud music, he went outside to see what Chris wanted, and about 15 minutes later, Julius Jones pulled up driving a brown Suburban. Chris and Julius told Liddell that they were looking to sell the vehicle and had approached him because he was an experienced fence or middleman for stolen vehicles or stolen items in general, really. Right. Now, was Chris supposed to have been uh, directly involved with the carjacking as well? Or was he just trying to help uh, Jones find a fence? So according to the prosecutor's theory, which is what we're discussing now, Chris would have been the driver. When he pulled up to uh, behind Paul Howe, parked a little back from him, um, Julius would have gotten out of the driver's side and then walked over to Paul and shot him. Okay, okay. So, yes, they were both involved. Okay, yeah. So, Liddell agreed, and the next day he went to Kermit Lottie's chop shop looking to sell the vehicle. Kermit declined because he had heard on the news that someone in Edmond had been killed over a Suburban and, understandably, didn't want anything to do with them for a while. Now, at this point, neither of them knew necessarily that this was the vehicle in question. Uh, Kermit was just being cautious. So, Liddell went home and turned on the news and discovered that Paul Howe had been killed over a brown Suburban just like the one Julius Jones had driven to his home the night before. He also realized that Julius was wearing the exact clothing an eyewitness claimed the killer had on. Now, there is one thing I, I would like to ask um, about the, the carjackings as we're going back over it again. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that you described it, it seemed that Jones just walked straight up to Hal and shot him. Did he didn't give him an opportunity to get out of the vehicle? Did Hal resist or anything like that? So there's two stories here. They're not, there's not a huge discrepancy, but in one story, Julius shoots him before ever saying a word. And in the other, it seems like he must have asked for the keys because some people say that uh, Paul Howe had already given him the keys before he pulled the trigger. Now, it's possible that he just pulled the gun and Paul knew what he was wanting and handed him the keys, so maybe there isn't a discrepancy there. But either way, he shot him before he said much at all, if anything. Okay, I understand. I just wanted to clear that up before we moved on. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a good point. And I wish I had a better answer for you, but there seems to be two conflicting stories there, and we may never know exactly what happened. Okay. So, Liddell King was understandably furious that Julius and Chris had tried to get him involved with a vehicle that was now associated with a murder. So, he confronted Julius about it. And according to Liddell, Julius told him that it was an accident. That he and Chris pulled up intending just to steal the car, but the gun went off. So, with this information, police got warrants to arrest Julius and Jordan. They tracked Jordan to a payphone near Liddell King's place and went to Julius's home looking for him. But Julius escaped out of a second-story window before police knew he was home. However, they did conduct a search. And it was during this search that they found a 25 caliber handgun wrapped in a red bandana hidden in the attic above Julius's closet. They also found a loaded magazine located in a door chime housing, which I have recently discovered is like a really pretentious doorbell. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know what that was when you said door chime housing. It's basically a doorbell. Okay. And finally, they found a box of twenty-five caliber ammunition in Jones's car. Ballistics confirmed that this was the murder weapon and matched the rounds to the one found in Paul Howe's head. Soon after, police found Julius staying with Chris Jordan's older brother and brought him in. Now, the last defense tells this part of the story a little differently. 
You see, the theory presented in the documentary and the one Julius swears by today is that he was a convenient patsy. That Chris Jordan was the shooter and Liddell King the driver. Supposedly, the two got together and set Julius up to take the fall. Julius claims in the last defense that on the night of the murder, he was at home waiting for Chris to come pick him up. And Chris was late getting there. So when he finally arrived, Julius asked him where he'd been. And according to Julius, Chris's response was that they went to do something and it didn't turn out right, whatever that means. Now, the next day, Liddell King, who Julius barely knew, by the way, paged him and asked for his help moving a Suburban. King told him he'd pay him for the trouble, and Julius agreed. Again, according to Julius, he drove Liddell's car and followed behind King in the Suburban to Kermit Lottie's shop. Julius claimed that he stayed in the car while Liddell went inside. And then a few minutes later, King came back out looking spooked. And he supposedly told Julius that Lottie didn't want the vehicle because it was attached to a body. In other words, he knew someone had been killed specifically over this vehicle. And then the next day after this is when a very confused Julius was arrested and charged with the murder of Paul Howe. So to recap, the theory is that Chris Jordan was the shooter and he pinned it on Julius with the help of Liddell King. And to be fair to the last defense, it's not an outlandish story, right? I mean, I could believe that that's what happened. It's not like Chris Jordan is winning any awards for honesty. He changed his story to police multiple times and even stayed over at Julius's home the night after the shooting. So he could have theoretically planted the murder weapon along with other evidence. If he were the shooter, I mean, he'd have a clear motive to do that, right? That's true. But also something that bothers me about this and in, in a lot of cases is that it's hard to put faith in someone's testimony when they have something to gain by someone else being found guilty, possibly. Right. right, but I mean, the same could be said of Chris Jordan, right? I mean, exactly. Just to be fair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, either one of them who spoke first probably would have gotten a deal. Yeah, yeah, and I think prosecutors try to turn people against each other like that. Well, yeah, so, of course they do. Yeah, yeah. And um, to be even more fair, Chris Jordan was the state's primary witness against Julius. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would have to say that this theory is plausible. The problem is that there's no evidence to suggest this is actually what took place. So the last defense just kind of makes it up. I mean, there are so many lies and half-truths in this documentary that there are, there's no way I could adequately cover them all in the time we have. So I've decided to focus on the lies that are most commonly repeated by people who believe Julius is innocent. So, any questions before we get started with the specifics of the documentary? Right. Does the documentary, do they provide any real evidence, or is it all just sort of conjecture? Well, they make claims that sound really good. It's just that most of them on further inspection turn out to be, well, charitably bullshit. All right. Well, I'm, I'm interested to see exactly what they've got here, so let's continue. All right. Okay, so let's start with Megan Toby's testimony about the shooter's hair. So the documentary claims that Paul Howe's sister and the only eyewitness to the crime described a man with long hair sticking out of a stocking cap. The idea is that the description best fits Christopher Jordan at the time of the incident. But the documentary completely misrepresents Toby's testimony. In the transcript, Toby claims that there was, quote, a small amount of hair sticking out about a half inch above his ears. Now, what Megan meant by this, and what the documentarians would have known if they had bothered to ask, was that she was talking about sideburns, 
not hair dangling down underneath the cap. The documentary wants you to believe that Toby saw cornrows hanging down below the stocking cap because that's what Chris Jordan wore, or that's the hairstyle he had at the time. But on the stand, Toby was asked specifically whether she knew what cornrows were and whether she saw any. She was very clear that she did know what they were and that she didn't see any, that the cap fit flat against the shooter's head. Well, that does seem to clear that up. Yeah, and it's important to remember that Megan Toby nailed the rest of the shooter's description. She described him as a black male wearing a white t-shirt and stocking cap with a red bandana covering his face. So whether you believe Julius or Chris was the shooter, the description was spot on. And those were the exact items police found in Julius's home. Even if you believe that Chris is the one who put them there, right? Right, right. And further, her description was corroborated by Liddell King, his girlfriend, Vixen McDonald, as well as a neighbor of the couple whose name I don't think has ever been released. Wait, now, now, whose girlfriend? Uh, Vixen, was that was that Paul Liddell Hall's King's girlfriend? girlfriend? Liddell King's girlfriend. Okay, okay, sorry. There was also the fact that a witness at Brahms reported seeing an Oldsmobile Cutlass driving around the parking lot before pulling out suddenly. And this witness claims that the driver had cornrows and that the passenger was wearing a white t-shirt. Now, on its own, that's not much, but combined with the other witness testimony, I think it's fair to say that Megan Toby has a pretty accurate recall of those events. Right. Now, we always call into question any eyewitness testimony, but with the the other, you know, with other eyewitnesses seeing the someone who fit that description in the car, I think that it, it really kind of backs that up. Right. With, with this amount of corroboration, it strains credulity that she could have been that wrong, right? Exactly. Um, and Julius Jones actually sent Megan Toby pictures of himself and Chris Jordan while he was in jail, hoping that she would see the pictures and change her testimony. But the photos only made her more convinced that it was, in fact, Jones who she saw that night. Yes, they kind of backfired on him. Yeah, a little bit. And that's not the only letters he sent from, from jail, and we'll get to those in a bit. Next, we have to look at the alibi. So, according to the last defense... Julius had a solid, corroborated alibi that his attorneys failed to offer at trial. Julius's family claims that he was at home at the time of the murder, eating a large plate of spaghetti and playing Monopoly with the family. I mean, obviously, if Julius was at home when Paul Howe was murdered, he couldn't have been involved. Not rocket science. Now, why did his defense not bring that into the trial? Well, that's a damn good question, Dan. And it turns out that the documentary leaves out some pretty important details here. For starters, the family told this story to Julius' attorneys before the trial. But Julius was clear that they were mistaken. He claimed that he was on the south side of town when Mr. Howe was murdered. And Julius' girlfriend, Annalise Presley, said the exact same thing that Julius told her that he was on the south side at the time of the murder. But it gets even worse, because according to the family, a well-respected math teacher and tutor named Brenda Cujo was with the family for dinner that night and could corroborate the alibi. Now, that sounds fantastic. Anytime you can get someone that's you know, well-respected in the community you know, on the stand, that's great for you, right? Especially right, when they're right. telling when they're telling the jury that you were somewhere else when the murder took place, and you would think that Jones would have just kind of gone with that. Well, he did later, but there's a problem here, of course, and that's that when the defense's investigator Rob Shelton went to speak with Brenda Cujo, she insisted that the dinner the family was referring to happened the night before the murder, and she knew this because she had gone to Kinko's on the way to the Jones house and had a receipt from Kinko's dated the 27th, the day before the murder. 
Uh, so the the defense really did their due diligence on this. Yes, they did. They didn't drop the ball. Now, were these contrary to popular belief? Were they public defenders or were these? Yeah, they were public defenders, and we're going to get to that in a bit. I mean, there are a lot of problems with public defenders. You know, they're overburdened, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Well, I'm not trying to throw them under the bus. I was just curious. No, I mean it's a fair question. So the family has been telling this story for years now, and they know it's untrue. I mean, I can't say I blame them. Right. I mean, if I had a family member who could be put to death, I'd be tempted to lie myself, you know, but there's no mystery here as to why David McKenzie, who is his attorney, by the way, one of them, never put the family on the stand to present this supposed alibi. He knew it was false and suborning perjury is a crime, not to mention a disbarable offense. Not to mention, it would just it would look worse when the prosecution just tore it apart. Too, yeah, of course. So. And see, that's important because you see, David McKenzie has spoken about this on a number of occasions. And what you bring up is a really good point because, as dark as it might sound, there's another reason you know outside of it just not being true that he couldn't put the family on the stand. In death penalty cases, attorneys have to consider the second phase or the punishment phase of the trial. And he had to preserve the family's credibility. If they were shown to be liars in front of the jury, they wouldn't be able to convincingly beg for Julius's life if it came to it. So, again, contrary to what the last defense would have you believe, Mackenzie was actually helping Julius by not presenting this alibi. He was preserving their, the family's credibility in the jury's eyes. That, that makes a lot of sense, though... I feel like in a way that is sort of an unfair prosecutorial advantage because... Well, there are any number of those. Right? I, I know, but like when, when you're holding the death penalty over someone's head, it's like you're you're just further tying someone's hands. Th- though I realize there are more reasons that they, they wouldn't I mean, yeah, have done that. I mean, but. In this case, had it you know even been feasible, I'm sure he would have put it on, but he had direct contradictory evidence, documentary evidence that it wasn't true. So he could not, without informing the court, put that on. And then it would have just been ripped apart. Right, right. So the next claim is that Julius was denied the right to testify at his trial. Now, this is one of those that's so absurd that, that you almost have to believe it. I mean, this is the kind of error that every judge knows will get you overturned immediately. So they usually go to rather extreme efforts to make defendants aware of their right to testify. I mean, we've all, anybody who's familiar with these sort of cases has heard the list of redundant questions the judge asks, right? Are you aware that's your decision and your decision only? Are you of sound mind? Has anyone threatened you or promised you anything? Are you currently on acid? I mean, the questions go on and on. And the transcript shows that this case was no different. Let me read you a little portion. The court, which is the judge, just so we're clear. When it comes right down to it, it is your personal decision whether to testify or not to testify on your own behalf. Have you determined with assistance of your counsel not to testify? Julius Jones. Yes, sir. The court. Is that a free and personal decision of your own? Julius Jones. Yes, sir. So, Another flagrant lie. I mean, Viola Davis clearly believes, somewhat justifiably if I'm being honest, that her viewers are too lazy to do even basic fact-checking before spreading misinformation. Now, is the documentary arguing that the the court actually just denied him uh, the, you know, the right to testify? or more that uh, his defense attorney sort of conspired with the court to, to talk him out of it? Okay, so that's a good question. And in the documentary, they basically just claim that he wasn't allowed to and don't particularly elaborate on it. However, at Jones's clemency hearing, he was asked about this, and he claimed that he was afraid of showing emotion in front of the jury, which is a little weird. But then he looked like a deer caught in headlights when he was informed 
that the jury was not present for this conversation. Because, of course, they're not. They're never in the courtroom when this conversation is had. But obviously, though, I mean, that's, that's still not denying him the right to anything. Right, of course not. But after he's called on this, at first he insists that they were there. And then he understands that, no, no, they weren't. And then he switches it to he didn't want to show emotion in front of the judge. So, I mean, the whole claim is outlandish, right? Like, that's one of those claims that you can look at and know almost, like, anybody with any knowledge of how these sort of court cases work would know that that's nonsense, right? You always have that right, and if you didn't, it would be tossed out on appeals in a second. Yeah, like, exactly. I mean, our appeal system is useless in a lot of ways. But if you screw up a procedural issue that that constitutionally important, then yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it's done. No, that's that's very obvious in like several cases that, that we've looked into. So, so, yeah. so to answer your question, it's just a lie. Okay, like it's not true. Like we have the court transcript. Well, we have portions of the court transcript, and this happens to be one of the portions that we have. Like, like we know the conversation he had with the judge that day in the courtroom. Now, whether you believe what he says about not wanting to show emotion in front of the jury, which wasn't there, or not wanting to show emotion in front of the judge, that's up to you. But I'm just telling you that this claim is nonsense. I understand. I understand that. So, the next one isn't technically untrue, right? The claim is that Jones had no violent convictions before he was convicted of murdering Paul Howe. But, again, that's only technically true. You see, Jones was later connected to a number of armed robberies and carjackings after he was found guilty of murder. So these were crimes that he had already committed. He just hadn't been found guilty of them yet. That's why the specific claim is that he had no violent convictions. Right. Well, he was uh, he was already a known car. Like the police knew about him already. Right. Didn't they? Right. As a car thief. Uh, now, um, out of curiosity, did he? Um, I mean, I'm sure he always used a gun, but was did he ever shoot anyone else? Like maybe injure someone else or anything like that? It doesn't appear so. So shortly before the murder, Jones robbed a jewelry store at gunpoint in Quell Springs Mall. He was later identified because he wore the same red bandana used in the Howl murder, and because he gave some of the stolen merchandise to his girlfriend as a gift, which he later took back and resold, just to be clear. He also pled guilty to a robbery with a firearm six days before the murder, and to carjacking a Mercedes from the Hideaway Pizza. Now, today, Julius claims he's innocent of the carjacking and should never have pled guilty. But the vehicle was found at his apartment complex, and the forged registration misspelled Mercedes the exact way Julius did when he wrote his statement admitting to the crime. He spelled it with a Z. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Now, I want to be clear. Like, I don't bring these crimes up merely to disparage Jones. Like, I picked these specifically because they're events that are similar to the Hal murder, even involve some of the same clothing, right? Which is probably why the last defense didn't want you to know about them. No, and it's hard to argue that even though he had not shot anyone else in these crimes, that these weren't violent crimes. I mean, he did commit these at gunpoint. Yeah, exactly. And remember, the documentary wasn't saying that he had never committed any violent crimes. They were saying he had never been convicted of any before murdering Paul. There's an important distinction there. Now, they hope that what you hear is that Jones had never committed any violent acts, period, before murdering Paul Howe. It's just, it's a, it's a trick of words. Now, I don't know why they felt the need to be fancy in this case, because the, the general plan had apparently just been to lie blatantly. But they were a little more subtle with the lie in this one. It's st- still a weak argument, though, but... Yeah, yeah. So, moving on to one of my favorites. And this is a supposed secret deal between Chris Jordan and the DA. 
So Chris, being an admitted co-conspirator, was the state's main witness against Julius at trial. He was supposed to serve 30 years of a life sentence before being eligible for parole, but he got out after serving only 15. According to the last defense, this is evidence of some secret arrangement between Chris and the state in exchange for his testimony. The problem is that we know exactly why Chris got out early, and it had nothing to do with the DA. So this takes a little explaining, so so bear with me here, okay? Mm-hmm. It has to do with how the Sentence Administration Office calculated time served. So inmates in Oklahoma receive points for good behavior and other activities, such as like work or vocational training. These points count towards their overall incarceration length. In other words, the more points you accumulate, the shorter your prison stay. Simple enough, right? Right, yeah. Now, the rule when Chris Jordan was initially incarcerated was that no deductions could be made from a life sentence. But here's the thing. Chris was in an unusual position. He was technically sentenced to life, except all but the last 30 years were suspended. So he got a life sentence, but would only have to serve 30, provided he met certain standards set by the parole board. Now, the rule at the time was that suspended sentences still counted as life, so no point deductions were applicable. Do you understand? Uh, Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Chris would have been required to serve the entire 30 years. However, on November the 1st, 2014, Sentence Administration revised the rule so that deductions could apply in cases of life suspended. So now, in Chris's case, it was the 30 years part that mattered to the Sentencing Administration, not the life part. And with Chris's accumulated points at that time, he was immediately eligible for parole. So, I mean, you can't really even argue with this that the prosecution were, were playing dumb and and they didn't know, or they, they just acted like they didn't know that his sentence would be They had no control over this whatsoever. It hadn't even been changed at that point. The, the rule was still that right. he'd have to serve the entire 30 years. It wasn't until 2014 where it was even changed. So we know why Chris Jordan got out early, right? Like, we don't need a conspiracy theory to explain it. Mm. And to add to this, it turns out that the DA actually wrote a letter to the parole board recommending they deny Chris's parole. I quote directly from the letter, quote, The Oklahoma County District Attorney's Office objects to early release and requests that Christopher O'Neill Jordan serve his entire sentence. So... So much for the secret deal. Though, I, I will say, I, I wonder if it is uncommon for the, the DA to do that, you know, quite often, or, you know, was this like a, a special circumstance for them to write that letter? I, I'm not arguing one way or the other. I'm just kind of curious about it. Oh, I mean, that sort of stuff's pretty rote. I mean, the district attorneys don't want people getting out on parole. That's not how that works. I mean, those sort of letters are pretty common. Yeah, I just I meant for this, you know, particular uh, county and whatnot. Right. Though, I've got to say though uh, about the whole the system in Oklahoma about them being able to earn points and get out. I think that's a pretty good system. I, mean, I, I think it's pretty common, actually. Yeah. Well, and I I don't I mean, I don't disagree with it. You know, I mean I don't think we should be letting violent criminals out, but anything to help try to rehabilitate someone, I think, yeah. is a rather than just locking them away and throwing locking them up and throwing away the key. Exactly. Yeah. But, I mean, I I think it's clear that the DA could have had nothing to do with Chris's early release here. And and here's the thing. No one's denying that Chris didn't get some benefit for, you know, turning state's evidence. That's just how that works, right? I don't always like it, but that's just how the system works. If you're the one who turns, you get the deal. That's why he got a life suspended, you know, 30 years suspended, right, on a life sentence. Yeah. Or with all but the 30 years suspended, rather. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So he did get a deal. There just wasn't any sort of secret arrangement to get him out in 15. So next, we need to discuss the bandana that Julius allegedly wore 
at the time of the shooting. And to be perfectly fair to the documentary, it only claims that the bandana Julius wore was never tested for DNA, which was true at the time the documentary was filmed. The defense never requested for it to be tested at trial, and the state only did a presumptive test on it for saliva, which came back negative. However, the bandana has since been tested for DNA, and it matched Julius Jones. So, while the documentary didn't really lie about this, they haven't exactly been quick to offer the complete story since the results came back either. Now, I've got to say, it, it, it seems that they would have done that DNA test, or they should have done that DNA test before the trial. Maybe, but the defense never requested it, and we're going to get to some more specifics on that in just a minute. But first, that there's a claim that people often make that I want to cover real quick. Okay. So, a lot of people say that this isn't really a match, that it's just a probability estimate. But... Problem is that all DNA results are expressed as a probability, right? Specific gene locations are tested, in this case, seven, and the results are presented as a probability of how frequently a randomly selected person would match at the same locations, right? In this instance, the probability of randomly selecting an unrelated individual with the same DNA profile is approximately 1 in 1.3 billion in the U.S. Caucasian population, 1 in 110 million in the U.S. African American population, and 1 in 1 billion in the U.S. Hispanic population. Now, considering there were only 18 million black males in the U.S. in 1999, I'd say that's pretty convincing, especially in light of the other evidence we've already discussed. And it's important to remember that Chris Jordan was excluded as a contributor to this sample. So if you believe he planted the bandana, then you need to explain how he managed to get Julius's DNA on it without adding any of his own. I mean, does anyone here really believe that Chris Westside Jordan is that criminally sophisticated? I mean, particularly considering he couldn't have known how far the science of DNA would come in nearly two, nearly two decades. No, that's, uh, that's a very, very good point. And, uh, that's another thing. Now the, um, the, the documentary, they, do they actually make the claim that he planted it or yes, they, they actually make the claim and I can understand that claim, but the I mean, fact it's a plausible that, theory, you just need evidence. With the DNA, it. it just, it falls apart. Right. The fact is that despite Jones's claims that he never wore bandanas back then, multiple eyewitnesses said otherwise, including his own girlfriend who reported seeing it in his car along with the murder weapon. Now, when your own girlfriend testifies against you, it, it looks bad. Yeah, and I mean, especially she had already wrecked his alibi. I mean, of course, he helped wreck that one too, but... Like, she was a terrible witness for him. No, against him, so. I should say. No. And now, getting back to what you were talking about earlier about testing the bandana. I mean, honestly, Dan, the whole bandana situation is why you never let activists represent you if you're not actually innocent. You see, they believed Julius. So, like morons, they demanded that the bandana be tested. And eventually the state agreed, due in part to pressure mounting, you know, from all across society. And now, even if Julius ever does get a new trial, his lawyers have basically ensured the same outcome. I mean, there's even more evidence against him now than there was then because of this. Exactly. It may be better for him, better for him if he doesn't get a new trial at this point because of the DNA evidence. Right. I mean, a good attorney would have complained about the bandana not being tested. Don't get me wrong. They just would never have been dumb enough to actually request the testing, right? Because it's a bluff that you can be certain the state will never call. Mostly because most of the results are bad for the state, right? I mean, if it comes back with nothing on it, that's evidence of his innocence, right? If it comes back with a mixture of Julius and someone else, particularly Chris Jordan, 
that's equally bad for the state. I mean, it's a piece of evidence that's probably been sitting in a tub or locker for 20 years. The state doesn't want to test that. And possibly you would think it may have degraded over the years. It may not even be testable at this point. Right. And there probably wasn't much to begin with, uh, much to begin with, because remember, the state had done a presumptive test on it for saliva back when the crime took place and it came back negative. I mean, it's only because of it's it's likely only because of advancements in DNA technology that any was found today. So it turns out that it was probably a very smart move on the public defender's part not to have it tested for DNA. Yeah, of course. And he has been publicly very critical. In fact, he was furious that Julius's new attorneys had that piece of evidence tested. Because again, if he ever gets another trial, that's a huge piece of evidence that it's against him now that wasn't then and didn't need to be because that evidence was never going to be tested if they didn't force it. Yeah, b- bad news for bad news for a new trial at any rate. Yeah. Okay, so earlier I mentioned that there were other letters outside of the ones that outside of the one he wrote to Toby, right? Right, and this sounds very interesting. Mm-hmm. Actually, well, he wrote some letters to his girlfriend. Now, this is more of an omission from the documentary. It's not an outright lie. You see, despite how frequently we're reminded how good of a guy Julius is and how he had never hurt anyone, the last defense conveniently omits the threatening letters he wrote to his girlfriend from jail. Threatening? Well, what, what was he threatening her about and wanted to change her story? Well, you see, Julius knew that Annalise Presley was set to testify against him at trial and that what she had to say was damning. So, let me read you a, a couple excerpts from these letters, okay? Quote, So you're going to have to do something for me now, really for your safety. Not that I'm threatening you, but I got some stupid-ass relatives, you know. So if they do call you to the stand, your best bet is to say you don't remember, unless you just don't care about me coming home. That's what you need to say, because they can't arrest you or charge you with nothing for saying that. Wow. I mean, Jones claims he was only trying to protect and reassure Annalise. But, I mean, is anybody buying that? Well, not after that crazy relative's comment, no. Oh, not that I'm threatening you, but I got some stupid-ass relatives just saying, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's obviously a threat. Yeah, of course. Now, the next one isn't quite as explicit, but it's fairly obvious he's telling her to perjure herself on the stand. Quote, as you should know, I go to trial on the 8th of January, and I told my attorneys that we're still together because they have been questioning me of my status and things. And if you do end up having to testify, do not exclamation point in the middle of a sentence tell them people that i was doing anything illegal okay just tell them you really don't know what i was doing and if they bring up your past statements just say you don't recall that or something to that effect so she'd already made statements he wanted her to go against that he he wanted her to go to jail too apparently yeah i mean i don't think he really cared what happened to her he just didn't want to go to jail himself He did not want her to say whatever it is she was planning on saying. I mean, let's be real. If he were genuinely worried about his girlfriend and wanted to reassure her, he'd just tell her to tell the truth. I mean, after all, it's not like he had anything to worry about, right? Right. Now, now are there more letters? Uh, If there are, I've never had access to them. Were these actually brought in as evidence at some point or or just something that, uh, that was published in the media? Yeah, they, they were they were brought in as evidence at the trial. Okay, okay, yeah. Well, it doesn't sound like something. Well, it doesn't sound like something the media would actually, you know, bring out. But I mean, it's hard to blame him, to be honest with you. I mean, her testimony was pretty damning. I mean, it destroys his alibi, but it also puts him with the murder weapon and bandana, which he claims to have never seen before the police found them in his home. So, not a good look. Honestly, you would think that they would have had a, a better chance of disproving that, that stuff rather than getting her to change her testimony. 
uh, just maybe trying to portray her as having a grudge against him or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Because writing those letters, that that ain't it. Just more evidence against him. Yeah. Okay. So I've been pretty rough on Julius, but if you remember, I did promise that I would touch on what I considered some legitimate issues with his case. So here's a few. For one, as we discussed a little earlier, we touched on one of his public defenders, David McKenzie, had a caseload of around 80 cases at the time. I mean, you know, this is a common issue with public defenders. They're overworked and underpaid. That's very true, and it's a problem. It's a real problem, but I don't think you could actually overturn a verdict on that basis because anyone that's had a public defender... You, you could overturn the verdict. Yeah, I mean, this is nothing specific to the case. There yeah. are some things specific to the case, but this ain't one of them. No, uh, but it, but it's it's a very valid uh, criticism, criti- yeah. criticism, though. Yeah, it's, it's a big problem for our country. Yeah, of course. Uh, Robin McPhail, who was the third attorney assigned to Jones's case, hadn't even passed the bar yet. She had no trial experience at all, much less on death penalty cases. So, yes, yes, they put a new attorney fresh out of law school on a death penalty case. That That's that's probably not uncommon either, honestly. Unfortunately, um, it's, it's, it's a, probably not. It's a big problem, but public defenders are, are so, are spread so thin. Yeah, I mean, uh, I cannot imagine being a public defender. Dear God. Completely thankless job. Oh, it really is. Okay, so moving on. Now, this one's more specific to the case. According to the last defense, a juror, in reference to Jones, was overheard saying that they should bury that N-word out back, or something to that effect. Now, at trial, the comment was never said to have any racial connotations. The judge was told that one of the jurors said we should take him, referring to Jones, out back and bury him. The N-word being used was new to the last offense. But honestly, I think it's mostly irrelevant. Either way, the juror should have been dismissed, and he wasn't. I mean, he should have been dismissed immediately, but he wasn't. Right. Obviously, that juror was biased regardless of the, you know, the, the racism issue there. Yeah, that I mean, just whether he used it, the slur you know? or not, he, yeah, had, he like, should have been that gone. Should have been, that but he should have been dismissed, yeah. Now, one other thing, the last defense does imply that this happened during the trial, but this was actually during the second phase, or the sentencing phase, which, does it make it much better? Not really, but... Right, but that, that's still not something a juror should be saying. I think no, they should I completely be, agree. They should be more professional about that, you know? I mean, I realize they're not professional jurors, but this is a big deal. Yeah, know? and which is a shame because, you know, this is a legitimate criticism, Right. But they still had to screw it up some way. I mean, why try to make it look worse when it's already really bad? I, I feel like he should have been dismissed already. So that that's that's pretty bad. That's a pretty bad point for the trial. Yeah. Now, to add one more thing to that, the judge did speak with all the other jurors, and they all claimed that they didn't hear this. So you could argue that, you know, they weren't prejudiced by it in any way. But who knows? Maybe they did, right? And, and hell, just even having one juror who thinks like that it is bad enough. Right. Even if they had not heard the comment, um, if you have one juror who is very biased against someone like that, uh, you know, if, if there is, you know, some racism in their feeling, whatnot, they can argue one way and really change some other people's minds. Right. right. You know? It only takes one rogue yeah. juror. To, you know, to infect the entire deliberation process. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. So, I'll be honest, Dan, this next one, I'm really torn on it. Like, it could be really bad, but I'm not really sure that it would have affected the outcome of the trial that much. I mean, you just, you tell me. So, as part of his appeal for ineffective assistance of counsel, Jones mentions two men who claimed that they had either heard directly from Chris Jordan or overheard Chris tell someone else that he was the real killer. 
Jones claims that they should have been called to the stand at his trial because his attorneys knew about them, or knew about it, one of them. And the two men in question were Emmanuel Littlejohn and Christopher Berry. Emmanuel Littlejohn was a convicted murderer and multiple-time felon who briefly shared a jail cell with Jordan while he was awaiting sentencing. He claims that Jordan told him that he was the shooter and had set Julius up by hiding the murder weapon in his home. Now, David McKenzie, Jones' attorney, went to speak with Little John and determined that he was a pathological liar and that the jury would not find him credible. The man was also severely mentally ill and had even tried to have himself declared unfit for trial on a couple of occasions. Now, Christopher Berry met Jordan while he was housed in the Oklahoma County Jail. Um, Barry claims that he overheard Chris tell someone named Smoke that he was the person who shot Paul Howe and that he took a deal to avoid the death penalty. Of note, Barry was also a child murderer who reportedly burned his own child's genitals. I, I don't know and I don't want to know the details, so don't ask. Now, that's that's dark. Um, yep. And I yeah, I don't want to know any more about this guy. But uh, I'm going to say that I don't know that the level of his criminality or the, the crimes he committed, you know, how terrible they were, should necessarily have any effect on his credibility because jailhouse confessions just are not credible to start with. <laughs> right, right. I was wondering you know, where you were going there. I was like, it seems right, to me yeah. that being a child murderer might impact your credibility. Like, if I I'm just, a juror, I'm taking that into account. You, you know, I get what you're saying. I just, I don't think you should go by jailhouse confessions to start with is what I'm getting at, That's, right? I tend to agree. I mean, you know, it's it's been said that if if we started letting people out of prison over jailhouse confessions... There would be no more people in prison. No, but but you could go the other way on that, too, because y you can get a jailhouse confession to basically say anything a prosecutor wants as well. Right, exactly. Now, I can't say maybe they shouldn't have called the guy just to cover the bases of the defense. Right. I mean, I, I don't know that it would have hurt the defense's case. See, that, that's kind of what I think as well, right? Like like I said, I'm torn on this one. I I doubt the jury would have found these men particularly credible. And the Oklahoma, uh, the Oklahoma Court of Appeals has consistently agreed. But then again, Chris Jordan and Liddell King weren't exactly model citizens, right? So could it really have hurt to put the child murderer and the crazy guy on the stand? I mean, uh, no, no. If I you mean, say no, I, I think that's fair. I mean, you've got two, basically, like two jailhouse confessions against two people that were you know, of involved in the, well with Liddell was, you know, sort of, sort of involved in the crime. Mm -hmm. If you, if you believe uh, Jones, Liddell was involved in the crime, right? Right. So you have two people involved in the crime versus two jailhouse confessions. You've got just, a, no one's credible in that situation. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree, which is why I think they probably should have been called. Well, you couldn't have hurt. Exactly. I don't think at that point. You and, know? you know, and this speaks to a broader issue of as well. To be even more fair to the last defense and to, to Julius Jones, there's a more general issue with our justice system here. And that's that the standard for proving ineffective assistance of counsel is brutally high. I think it's Strickland versus Washington. That, yeah, that's it. Strickland versus Washington that lays out what constitutes an, an ineffective assistance of counsel. And it's a two-pronged test. Deficient performance and prejudice to the defendant, and both have to be met. So not only do you have to prove that the attorney did something unreasonably inept, you have to also demonstrate that, if not for the deficiency, the verdict would have been different. How the hell do you prove that, especially that second one? It seems to me it's incredibly subjective. Right. Oh, of course it's incredibly uh, I mean, I mean, just the term ineffective assistance of counsel, that, that's subjective in itself. Right. Because, let's be honest, right? Like, if, if you put this on a sliding scale, anyone that doesn't have, you know, Johnny Cochran has ineffective right, counsel. Right, exactly. Like, how much money you have can determine. But here's the thing. 
with the standard of Strickland versus Washington, uh, just about anything that you would consider deficient, such as maybe not calling these two witnesses or the, you know, these two jailhouse uh, confession guys, the state can always argue that this was a reasonable uh, tactical measure taken by the attorney, right? Because you can't argue that, well, the jury never would have found these guys credible, so it's reasonable as an attorney not to put them on the stand, right? Yeah, I understand exactly. As what long you're as they can make some justification for the attorney's behavior, can tie it into a strategy in some way. Well, prong one's out the window. And I'll be honest, I don't even know how the hell you deal with prong two. How do you present something that you can prove would have changed the verdict? Barring, you know, exculpatory evidence, I don't think you can prove that. Well, the thing right. is that this was exculpatory evidence, right? It's not particularly convincing exculpatory evidence, if you, you know, in my personal opinion, but it is exculpatory evidence. And who gets to say, you know, other than the appeals court, of course, but who, who can say which exculpatory evidence would have been enough for a jury? Like, how can you ever know that? Right. There's, there's no mathematical formula for that. Of course not. It's purely subjective. But again, a lot of this is just a general issue with the justice system and nothing particularly pertaining to his case. Now, whether Barry or Little John should have been called, I, I, I could even grant that they probably should have, right? But even doing that, I don't know that it would have made a difference. And it, I especially don't think it would make a difference now with the DNA. No, I have to agree with that about the DNA evidence. Um, though, I mean... If he wants a new trial, I mean, he's, you know, it's 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 his funeral, right? Right. You know, what really bothers me about this is, like I said, I'm not weeping that he's not going to be killed. I don't want Julius Jones to be put to death. But the problem is that these activists who got his sentence commuted in the first place have no plans on stopping, right? They want him out of prison or at least to get a new trial. And, like, if your goal was to get Julius Jones out of prison, like, you really, really, really need to look at the evidence. Like, stop relying on people like Kim Kardashian to tell you what happened in this case. Because I don't see a way that when you actually look into the evidence that you can walk away genuinely believing that Julius Jones is innocent. Maybe you can come away with, you know, the opinion I'm adopting, which is, you know, maybe there were some shenanigans in the trial that could get him, you know, a new one. As, as far as the actual matters of fact are, it looks like he's guilty. I'm fine with granting him a new trial, right? I don't know that he really wants a new trial well, with DNA evidence. Exactly. But, you know, I mean, if, if they want him to have a new trial, then give the man a new trial. I, you know, I'm fine with that. And, and I think that if, if anything warrants it, which I think there are a few things here that, that possibly warrant a new trial, then give him a new trial. I mean, it, is it going to waste some taxpayer dollars? Yeah, but I mean, it's not like our justice system isn't doing, doing that, that already. Already, right? Um, and as far as you know, his his sentence being um being changed to life in prison, I, I'm I'm all for that. I think we should take everyone off death row at this point, anyway. I I'm not trying to anger anyone by saying that. I just don't. Our justice system is not infallible. Right, and it would just about need to be to be putting people to death, in my estimation. Right, and and I mean, what? And honestly, when you when you look at it subjectively, or excuse me, when you look at it objectively, what's the point in putting them to death anyway? I mean, it it can make the victim's family feel better, but it's not going to bring that person back. Right, and um, I mean, the goal of the justice system is to keep these people from harming society. They can't do that from in prison. Well, in most, it, barring extreme circumstances, they can't do it from within prison. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's basically all I have on Julius. Um, you know, the long and short of it is that I think he's guilty. So take that, you know, make what you will of it. I mean, I hope at the very least that people have. You know, we'll give these things some thought. Now, I know that there's a large portion of people who probably stopped the moment I said that they wouldn't like what I would have to say, 
you know, three minutes into this. But for for someone who did bother to listen all the way through, you know, don't take my word for it either. You can double check these things on your own. Like these documents are available for anyone to read, and I urge you to do so. The, the evidence really does seem to point toward him being guilty. Um, I can't say that for for sure. You know, for you know, definitely. Um, especially when you look at that DNA evidence, because I don't know that that Chris Jordan would have thought to try to to plant DNA on the bandana, right? Yeah, right. Of someone else's yeah. DNA. I mean, it's like it strains credulity that he would have been thinking that far ahead. Yeah, and uh, exactly because. You know, at the time, I didn't even think they'd get caught, right? I mean, you're not going to just go shoot someone if you think you're going to get caught. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I've got to say, though, the nature of the crime bothers me. I mean, like, it, I mean, carjackings aside, you know, you you, di- you don't have to shoot the guy. Even no. if you won't get out of the car, you know, just 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 let it. It's not like it's going to, like, you know, ruin your credibility with the next person you try to rob. You know, it's just. Right, right. You could let him go, you know. It's yeah, not, I don't think there's a carjacking credit system. No, no, and uh, you know, I, I know that that sounds ridiculous, but there's there's no point that he actually had to shoot this man. Um, no, of course not. Shot him. Um, so the, the nature of the crime bothers me. It is a violent crime, but like I said before, I, there's I don't think we should put him to death for it, regardless of of the proof of guilt. Yeah, know, I, just, I, I agree. It's it's not an infallible system. So, Ben here, funny story, turns out that as we were closing up the episode, Daniel's power went out, so it looks like I'm finishing up on my own, which is fine, because we were basically done at that point anyways, we were just rambling. Usually, this is the point where he would tell you to hit us up at Twitter, at andsuspicion, or email us at factandsuspicion at gmail.com. So, you know, maybe do that. Anywho, uh, thank you for listening to Fact and Suspicion. I hope you have a wonderful day. Nailed it.